ओम नमो भगवते श्री अरुणाचल रमनाय नमस्कार फ्रॉम दिस मंथ ऑनवर्ड्स आई विल बिगिन एक्सप्लेनिंग द वर्सेस ऑफ डिस्कसिंग एंड एक्सप्लेनिंग द वर्सेस ऑफ उलुदुनापदुनबंदम but before i begin on the first mangalam verse i will just say a little bit about the the origin of the work and why it happened to be called ulladunapadanabandam that is prior to 19 um prior to about july 1928 there were a number of um verses of instructive verses that bhagavan had written on various occasions and murugana had collected these together and there were about um 20 in number and uh, murugana gave them to bhagavan and suggested that bhagavan should write a work in which he would uh, explain the um the, the nature of reality and the means of attaining it and um Mulgrin suggested these work these verses could form the basis of that work so bhagavan began to write uludunapadu this was over a period of about 2 weeks in the um late july and early august of um of uh 1928 in in the space of about 2 weeks bhagavan composed all the verses of uludunapadu and as he was composing them he and murugana were discussing um the order in which the verses should be presented where there were gaps where other verses could be written to fill them in and of the original 20 uh, 21 verses or whatever it was uh, which to retain and which to um uh, set aside and by the end all bar 3 of the original uh, 21 have been set aside and even those three were um were uh, i think two of them were modified by bhagavan only one was retained as it, as it was um and so these uh, 40 plus 2 verses formed uludunapadu uludunapadu uh, means uludu means what is what exists in other words what what actually existed in place and napdu means 40 so uludu napdu that is it simply means what is 40 that implies 40 verses on what is and the extra two verses are mangalam verses mangalam means um they are introdu- um introduction introductory auspicious introduction benedictory verses we can say um so since most of the original set of verses that murugan had gathered together were set aside um murugan and bhagavan decided to retain them not as part of the main uludunapadu but as a separate work which they called uludunapadu anabandham in the first edition uludunapadu anabandham consisted only of uh, 21 verses that was in 1928 but gradually the number increased up to 30 and eventually it came up to 40 plus 1 mangalam verse uh so 41 verses in all um so this is and um whereas uludunapadu is the pure teachings of bhagavan that is bhagavan teachings in their very purest and most refined form 
um, it, it, that in Uludhanapalu Bhagavan is presenting the, the basic principles of his teachings. Um, so if we understand Uludhanapalu, we, we, we've got a, a firm ground on the basic principles of, of Bhagavan's teachings. Uludhunapadu, on the other hand, is a mixed bag. Firstly, it's there, not all the verses of Uludhunapadu and Abandam are original verses of Bhagavan. Some of them are original, but um, I think more than half of them, I can't, I can't remember at the moment off the top of my head, but more, more than half of them, I think, were verses Bhagavan translated from various other sources. So, so this... Sorry. Um, I think you you meant to say Anubandham is a mixed bag. Yeah, did I say did I say Uludhunapadu is mixed bag? Yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 I meant sorry. You're, I stand corrected. Uh, Anubandham, Uludhunapadu, Anubandham is a mixed bag. So it can take that is all the verses of Uludhunapadu, original verses of Bhagavan, and they express the pure the teachings of Bhagavan in their purest form. Uludhunapadu, Anubandham is a mixed bag. Firstly, because they're not all original verses of Bhagavan. The majority of them are uh, translations. And um, secondly, um, <clears throat> whereas some of the verses, are, are particularly some of the original verses composed by Bhagavan, are expressing his the deeper aspects of his teaching, others are more, um, more general. They're not really central to Bhagavan's teachings, um, as we will see as we go along, because um, some of them really are not uh, particularly relevant to his teachings at all, but they just happen to be verses that he composed. Um, and some of the verses that were later added in Uludhunapadu, some of the original verses of Bhagavan, actually they were part of Guru Kukavai. Often when Murugana composed a verse, Bhagavan would sometimes compress a four-line verse into two lines, or sometimes he would, um, and then he would sometimes add another two lines in front of that to make a more full verse, or sometimes he would uh, condensed two verses composed by Murugana into one verse. So some of those verses that Bhagavan wrote for Uludhunapadu, for, sorry, for Guru Vachika Kuvai, were then added, it was subsequently added in uh, uh, Uludhunapadu Anabandam. Um, so as I say, it's under various circumstances Bhagavan composed these verses. Um, and we have to understand it, that these aren't all the purest teachings of Bhagavan. Now we come to a verse that I'm going to be discussing today, which is the, the Mangalam verse. There's only one month, whereas for Uludhunapadu, there are two Mangalam verses. For Uludhunapadu Anabandam, there's one Mangalam verse. And this verse is not an original verse uh, by Bhagavan. Like many of the other verses of Uludhunapadu Anabandam, it is a translation from um, Yoga Vashista, yeah. uh, which in Tamil is called Jnana Vashista. Uh, the Tamil work Jnana Vashista, or Jnana Vashishtam, as it's called in Tamil, is actually a translation of the Lagu Yoga Vashista, which is a condensed form of the uh, of, uh, whole of, uh, I, I think the whole of um, Yoga Vashista runs to more than 30,000 uh, verses. 
and Lagu Yoga Vashista, maybe, I don't know how many, a few thousand, maybe 10,000 or so. So it's a very much condensed version. And the Lagu Yoga Vashista is what has been translated into Tamla's Jnana Vashista. So there are many verses that are in the original complete work of, of Yoga Vashista, but are not included in the Tamil work, uh, Jnana Vashista. This is one such verse. How Bhagavan came to notice this verse is once a, a new a, a new printing of um, a, a new edition of well I mean it's it's not it wasn't changing the, the content but it was a new uh, a, a new printing of uh, Yoga Vashist, of Jnana Vashistam in Tamil was uh, given to Bhagavan and he was going through it and he noticed. Um, uh, some printing errors. So he was correcting the printing errors and slowly going through the book. And uh, occasionally he would refer, he also had the complete work in Sanskrit. So occasionally he would refer to see how it was expressed in Sanskrit. And sometimes he would notice that certain verses uh, but were in Sanskrit, were not in Tamil. So this, uh, this particular verse belongs to... Um, that is Yoga Vashista is a very nice work. It's uh, full of uh, Advaitic philosophy, also with some yoga and some other philosophies mixed in, but uh, largely Advaita philosophy. But it's told in the form of stories. That is, the teachings are given in the form of stories. And within the stories, the stories are told to illustrate the teachings. Uh, so it's, it is Puranic in style, that is, in the, it's written in the style of Puranas, uh, which are the mythological stories, but the content is philosophical. So this particular verse comes from a, a portion of, uh, of, of uh, Yoga Vashista, uh, which is telling the story of Janaka, King Janaka, who was the, um, the father-in-law of uh, Lord Rama, and who was a great, uh, a great nyanya, a great sage. Uh, in this story of about uh, Janaka, it says once uh, Janaka, he was a king. He was a, um, a very a good and noble king. One day he was walking in the gardens of his palace and he heard some voices. These were the voices of Siddhas of um, sages, but they were in a bodiless form. So he couldn't see their forms, but he could hear their voices. And they were um, they were uh, talking about the, um, I think, uh, anyway, they, 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 were, they were talking among themselves, a debate of philosophy. So there were a series of verses in the original in which they were expressing certain ideas. From that particular portion, most of the verses of that uh, discussion that Janaka was overhearing of the Siddhas talking, Bhagavan found that all bar one of the verses was translated into Tamil, but one verse wasn't translated into Tamil. So in the same meter as the verses, as the verses in that portion of the the Tamil work, Bhagavan um, uh, translated this verse. Uh, so that's the context in which Bhagavan uh, translated this. And it was later decided by Bhagavan and Murugana that this would be a, 
a fitting uh, Mangalam verse for Uludunapadu Anabandam because it is is very philosophical in content. Uh, whereas Mangalam verses generally are uh, uh, are prayers to some god, or at least they refer, or they can be sometimes dhyana slokas. They can be we meditate on such and such a god. It can be the import of them. The, in this verse, it doesn't mention any particular god, but it mentions the ultimate reality. So that is the subject of this verse. So it is a, a fitting mangalam for uh, Uludunapadu Anubandam, the, the, the bulk of the contents of which are Advaitic in, uh, in their import. So what, um, uh, what I'll, I'll first um, uh, read the verse and its meaning. Um, the verse actually it's quite a long verse and it consists of two sentences but to make it easier to um to follow i will read one clause in tamil and then one clause in english uh just to give the gist of it so what Bhagavan says is um edan kanne nileyahi irundum uh irundidum uh uh, that means in what all this world steadily exists. Uh, that's the first clause. The second clause is Edenadu um, Elam. That means uh, uh, of what all are. Um, the third clause is Edenindru. If anatu ulahum erumo, that means uh, from what this entire world arises, uh, and then matru ive yabum edum porutu arm. That means as well as for what all these are. Edenal ive ivayaham ivayam. Uh, Elam uh, erundidum. Uh, that means um, by what all this world arises. And the next clause is Ivelamum eduvo ahum. That means whatever uh, this all is. All these are, uh, um, in all these clauses, he's saying in what, of what, from what. Uh, for what, by what, and then whatever they all, uh, all, all this is, then he the co concluding clause is, adutane uh, porul uh, arm. That means that itself is the existing substance. So that's the end of the first sentence. So in what all this exists of what all these are, from what all this arises, uh, for what all these are, by what all this uh, all this arises, whatever all this is, that itself is the existing substance. Um, and then the, that's the first sentence. And then the second sentence is, Satyamam acharupam ahatil uh, vepam. That means, um, 
let us hold that Swarupa, uh, which is Satyam, which is real, in our heart. Um, Swarupa means our own nature, one's own nature. So he's, the implication is that the, what he referred to in the previous sentence as Ullaporul, which means the same as Satvastu in Sanskrit, um, in other words, the existing substance, in other words, the one thing that the one real substance, the one thing that actually exists, that is, uh, he, he, because in the next sentence he refers to it as that Swarupa, that means that uh, it implies that that existing substance is our own real nature, therefore we should hold it or cherish it in our heart. That is the conclusion. Uh, so it, it is a type of uh, dhyana sloka. We are meditating, as it, it's calling upon us to meditate on our own real nature, which is that in, in which all this world exists, uh, of which all, all, all are, from which this entire world arises, for which all these are, by which all, all this arises, and what is all what all this actually is, that itself is our own real nature. That is what we should meditate on in the heart. Um, so if I slightly expand the, the meaning to, of the verse to bring out the, the implication a little bit more, um, in this, this is the explanatory paraphrase in which I've added some words to help clarify uh, the verse. In what all this world seemingly steadily exists, the word seemingly is not there, but that's implied, of what or whose all are, from what this entire world arises, appears or originates, also for what or because of what um, all these are, by what this world arises, appears, or originates, and whatever all this is, that itself is Ulaparul, the existing substance or sattvastu, the one and only substance that actually exists. Let us always hold, keep, cherish, or meditate on that Swarupa, our own real nature, which alone is real, in the heart. Uh, let us keep that in the heart. That alone—that is the which alone is real—is is a relative clause that refers to swarupa. Um, but the, so the main clause of this second sentence: let us hold or cherish that swarupa in our heart. And that implies let us meditate on it. Um, uh, there's also this second sentence also has an alternative meaning because we can split the the final word is vapam, which means may we or let. Let us uh, put, place, hold, keep, guard, cherish, or meditate on. Uh, so that's a verb. We can also split it as two words, as vapu, which means treasure, and arm is. So this second sentence can also be taken as a statement. That swarupa, which alone is real, is the great treasure, is, is the treasure in our heart. In other words, it's the treasure of divine grace that always exists in our heart. Um, what is to be... Uh, oh, oh, before I proceed further, I just one thing. That is, he's... That is one... 
they're very in each of the clauses of the uh, first sentence, he's referring to all. He talks about if ulahum elam and varying uh, uh, variations of that. If ulahum elam means all this world. It can also imply, though ulahum is singular, it can also imply all these worlds. Um, so it, whatever world, the world of waking, the world of dream, the heavenly world, the uh, lower world, the worlds of hell, all all imaginable worlds, all possible worlds, all are implied here. Well, not all possible worlds, all, all worlds that seem to exist in any state, all are implied here. In other words, he's referring to um, these imply all worlds and hence all phenomena. So all phenomena appear in... Um, yeah, that that is they they exist in, uh, they belong to, and they arise from, and uh, their purposes, and um, uh, they arise by means of, uh, and they actually are this one ulaporal. That's the idea. So, <clears throat> if we hear about um, something that we haven't heard about before, we naturally uh, if we're curious to know more about that thing there are a series of questions but we are but we would naturally ask about it we would ask um so we are told about this thing all these worlds so what questions can we ask about it in what do all these worlds seem to exist whose are they from what do they arise for what are they uh, in other words for what purpose are they or for the sake of what are they? Uh, by what do they arise? What actually are they? These these are the questions that are answered in this the first sentence of this uh, verse, and um, it answers e each of these questions, each of these six questions, um, or each of these uh, wait, saying five, uh, six questions. Yes, each of these six questions. Uh, and it, the answer it gives to all of them is the same, namely ulaporul or satvastu, the one and only substance that actually exists. That alone is that in which, um, of which, uh, um, uh, from which, for which, by which, and which all these actually are. So that is the idea, and that ulaporul. As he implies in the second sentence, that ulaporul is uh, swarupa, our own real nature. And then, after asking these six questions, the only question that remains to be asked is: Okay, uh, if all these are just that one thing, um, then what are we to do with that thing? What we are to do with it, Bhagavan says. It's not something, because it's the underlying reality, we cannot actually do anything with it. But what we can do, we can fix our mind upon it. We can, uh, we can cherish it in our heart. We can, uh, you know, we can meditate on it lovingly in our heart. That is the implication. And we medit how do we meditate on it? By turning our entire attention back within. Um, what is to be... Uh, uh, another point, but important point to notice in this verse is um, 
in order to emphasize that all these worlds are in no way independent of Ullaparul, it is referred to in this verse using seven of the eight grammatical cases, excluding only the vocative or eighth case. That is in Sanskrit and Tamil and um, uh, other Indian languages, particularly the older Indian languages. There are basically seven cases, but one extra case is also added, which is the vocative case. Um, the vocative case is the case when you're addressing someone, but in some classifications that's counted as an eighth case. In some case, in some classifications, it said there are just seven cases and the locative is left aside. So the, the seven main cases all are, um, all are mentioned in this verse, but if they're mentioned um, except for the first two, they're mentioned in reverse uh, in reverse order. That is in um, whereas in English we refer to cases by names based on Latin. We talk about uh, locative, genitive, ablative, and so on. In um, in uh, Sanskrit and Tamil, there's each of the, each case is given a number. So um, it. And there are seven main cases. So this verse begins with the locative or seventh case, in what or where. Then comes the genitive or sixth case, of what or whose. Then the ablative or fifth case, from what. The dative or fourth case, for what. The instrumental or third case, by what. And then uh, in the first sentence, finally, the nominative or first case, whatever, and that, these are both nominative. Um, that's in the first sentence. And then the accusative or second case is referred to in the second sentence. The, the word that is um, syntactically the uh, accusative or second case is achorupam. That's Swarupa. Though it is not accusative in form, in other words, it doesn't have a it doesn't have the accusative case ending, syntactically it is accusative because it stands as the object, the object on which we are to meditate. Of course, it's not an object, it's the reality of the subject, but from a grammatical point of view, the, that on which we meditate is called the object of meditation. Even if that on which we are meditating is not an object but a subject, still from a grammatical point of view, it is considered as uh, an object, in other words, the accusative case. In English, we don't usually, we don't use cases have almost died out. I mean, in Old English, I think cases were still used. In Latin, Latin is a language based on cases. I assume Greek also. The only modern, um, or, or at least one of the modern European languages that still uses a case system is German, I believe, uh, though I don't know anything about that. In English, um, we, in most cases, we use prepositions in 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 place of cases. Um, cases means it's a, it's an ending that there's a particular ending that represents what case uh, a noun is. In other words, what its grammatical function is in a sentence. Um, in English, we still retain um, cases for certain pronouns. For example, I 
is the nominative case. Me is the accusative case. Um, um, my is the genitive case. And the other cases we uh, we form by uh, adding prepositions, by me, of me, for me, and, and so on. So the, the pronouns still, the cases are to some extent still retained in English, but basically um, the, the case system has almost died out in, in modern English, but it's still retained in, um, I mean, it's there in, older European languages, it's still there in German, and it's still there in most Indian languages. But for example, whereas um, Sanskrit has eight cases or seven main cases and one addition plus the vocative case, I believe in Hindi, which is one of the languages derived from Sanskrit, nowadays they only use three cases. And other, the other cases they represent in other ways. Um, like I don't know whether they use prepositions or what it is, but it's it's they don't have the full case system in in Hindi, which is a relatively modern language. But um, like Sanskrit, Tamil is a very ancient language, so it still uses uh, all the cases. Um, sorry, I, that's just a bit of grammar, but it's just to explain the. Um, to explain uh, the, this significant point about this verse. But why is this significant from a philosophical point of view? By using all these eight cases, it shows that this world is in no way independent of Ullaporul. Every possible relationship it has with Ullaporul. Of course, Ullaporul has no relationship with, that, that is, the reality has no relationship with the world, because in the view of the reality is, is such a pure being, pure awareness, in the view of which there is nothing other than itself. But from the perspective of the world, it is wholly dependent on the Satvastu, the Ullaporul, which is the one thing that actually exists. Um, so, if we go through each of these um, each of these cases, he begins by saying "eden kanne," that that means "in what," which is a locative or seventh case form of "edu," which means "what." In what all uh, all this world um, uh, exists firmly or steadily, um, though it. Though it says the world exists, though it implies the world exists steadily, um, that is, this is from our perspective. The world seems to be very steady, it's very fixed, very permanent. It is not actually so. It is only seemingly um, uh, steady. It's, it doesn't actually exist at all, according to Bhagavan's teachings and according to Advaita more generally. So, in what all these are. So, to how can we, in what sense does this world exist in Brahman? Just like um, waves and foam and bubbles and so on exist only in the ocean. They have no in existence independent of the ocean. Um, they exist in the ocean uh, and they... they Okay, we'll stick to it. So they, just like the waves and everything exist in the ocean, all this world exists only in Brahman. Um, and uh, 
just like the, the waves and the foam and the bubbles all belong to the ocean in the sense that they are not separate from the ocean. The waves, whose waves are the ocean? The, sorry, who, to whom do, whose are the waves? They are the ocean's waves, like that. Who's all these worlds? They are Brahman. They belong to Brahman, the Ullapur, the Satvastu. That is, they they have no independent existence. Here, the, uh, how Bhagavan expresses that in Tamil is Edanadu, yes, Edanadu Elam. That means of what all? That means of what are all these? Uh, of what means whose? This, this is the genitive case. The genitive case is often described as a catch-all case because we, the genitive is used to express many different types of relationships. Um, we can see that with how we use the word of in English because of represents the genitive case. In English, we also represent the genitive case by apostrophe s. But if you think about the ways we use of, it doesn't only uh, represent possession. Um, if, for, for example, if I ask, whose is this book? There, it's a case of possession. But we often use the, the, the genitive case or the equivalent of the genitive case in, in other cases. For example, if you, if you say, um, uh, um, if you're living in America, you can say, my president is Joe Biden. That doesn't mean Joe Biden belongs to you. That it's a relationship. Joe Biden is the president of America because you happen to be a citizen of America. Therefore, Joe Biden is your president. So of represents many different types of relationships. We also, for example, talk about the city of Paris, the city of Rome, the city of New York, the city of London. Does that mean that uh, there's a that uh, New York is is the possessor and the city is its possession? No, it, city of New York means the city that is New York. So, like this, the genitive case is used in so many. It, it covers so many different so many different types of relationship. Um, but the purpose in this verse, why all the cases are used to show that any possible relationship. Because the world is wholly dependent on Brahman, it has it it stands in every possible relationship to Brahman. Brahman means all the parts of the one thing that actually exists. Um, and then the so uh, just like the waves and the bubbles and the uh, foam exist in the ocean and and belong to the ocean so this world exists in brahman and belongs to brahman so that's the seventh and sixth case the the locative and genitive cases and then the next case he uses is um uh edin indru edin indru means from what that is the ablative case so edin indru if an a to uh ulahum uh that means Eremo, uh, uh, from what all this world arises. So from what does this world arise? It arises only from Satvastu, just like the, um, the, the waves and bubbles, again, we can use this analogy, arise from the ocean. 
or we can say we could even say um the the snake arises from the rope in other words the, the, what the underlying reality is the rope but what appears from the, what it, the rope appears to be is a snake so the, that appearance of a snake uh, arises from the rope so to speak in the same way this world is just an appearance um so it appears from it arises from and it disappears into subsides into uh only um and then the, the next relationship he talks about this is the more difficult one um 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 that means um yeah uh matru means also that's just added there for the poetry um Iveyabha means all this. Edumporotu means for what? But for what purpose are all these? This is a bit more difficult to explain because the normal way it's explained, well, there are different ways. In theistic religions, they say, what is the purpose of this world? It's all God's leela. Um, it's all God's play. Uh, that's one way of viewing it, but that's from a more theistic point of view. This verse is not a is not expressed from a theistic point of view, so that doesn't fit here. Another explanation that is sometimes given is um, that the, this world, the nature of this world, is suffering. That is, we can't we we live in this world as bodies, and when we as as a body in this world we we are born we grow up we go through all the the, the pains of uh, childhood and adolescence and everything and then we take on responsibilities we have to work for a living and so on and so on and so forth then we get we're liable to get sick or to have accidents or we may be caught in pandemics or wars or um, famines all sorts of uh, troubles we we are liable to face in life and even if we have a relatively um, materially comfortable life we still have worries we have worries about um uh, about uh, we may have worries about money about how to pay the bills how to pay the mortgage we may have worries about whether we're going to lose our job because they're making people redundant to try and cut back or we may have worries about um our elderly parents who are sick we may have worries about our children who aren't studying well at school or who aren't in good health and so many things in life can cause problems to us and then eventually after going through all these troubles we grow old and we grow sick and um we, eventually we're all going to die and the, um, and some don't even get to old age some die of disease or accident or war or whatever um uh in or disease um even in relatively young age so um this this world if we are honest with ourselves this world is a source of great trouble to us though we are very attached to this world and we as we expect to get happiness from this world we will all be disappointed because happiness doesn't lie in this world so it is sometimes said the purpose of this world is to teach us but clinging to the body and world is a source of suffering and thereby uh, 
teaching, in other words, this world is like a, like a school. We, we come here to learn the lesson, but not to seek happiness in this world, because though we all start off seeking happiness in this world, we are all disappointed, and eventually we come to understand happiness is not to be found in the external world. So it is often said the purpose of the world is to teach us vairagya, to teach us uh, desirelessness, and thereby to turn us in. But that is not, that is a purpose for us as the jiva. How is that a purpose for Brahman? Brahman doesn't need the world. Brahman doesn't need uh, to, to suffer in order to uh, then seek liberation. Brahman is ever free, ever blissful. So it is difficult to explain how this world exists for Brahman. In his Tamil commentary, Sadhuam has explained because there's no there's no very satisfactory way of explaining how this world is for Brahman, the the uh, one way we can explain it is as Bhagavan says in the first verse of Uludunapadu, um, because we see the world accepting one first thing, one uh, first principle. Uh, with a power to appear as many is the one best option. In other words, Bhagavan is advocating that we should accept that there's one underlying reality and that that one reality has a power with a power to has a power to appear as many, to be seen as many. That is the, the reason he gives for that is Nam Uluhum Kandalal, because we see the world. So, how is that a reason for this conclusion? Because we are one. We who see the world are one. The world we see is multiple. So, but all this multiplicity ex exists in the view of one. So, uh, since the multiplicity exists in the view of one, namely ourselves, this multiplicity depends for its semi-existence upon the semi-existence of our, our as the seer of it. So, uh, but the world doesn't exist independent of us. All this multiplicity appears in the view of only one thing, namely ourself as this ego, this, this mind that sees the world. So, since we are one, that all things depend, all other things, all the things we know depend upon us as the knower. Without a knower, there's nothing known. So all things that are known depend upon the knower. But the knower is ego, which appears in waking and dream and disappears in sleep. Since it appears and disappears, it is not real. So it must have an underlying reality. That from which it appears and into which it disappears that is the reality. So, and that, so it's reasonable to take, since ego is one, since knower is one, here Bhagavan is talking about our own experience. That is, we, we see many others, and because we take ourselves to be a body, we take every body to be a, a self, an ego, just like us. So it seems to us that there are many people, many others are seeing the world just like we're seeing it. But exactly the same appearance is there in sleep. In sleep, it seems to us, but there are there are many other people in the dream, and all those other people are perceivers of the dream, just like us. So it seems to us while we are dreaming. 
But when we wake up from a dream, we recognize there were the only one who was seeing that dream was ourselves. All those other people were just a part of the dream. Even the person we took ourselves to be was itself a part of the dream. So all this multiplicity appears in the view of one. And since that one rises and subsides, it, it's reasonable to infer that it rises from one and subsides in one. That one is the uh, or, or, the, or model, the, the one uh, first principle that Bhagavan refers to in the first verse of Uludhanapriyan Bandham, and he says it has a power to uh, a nanabam shakti. That means a power uh, which becomes many. In other words, it has a power to, to be seen as many. That power he refers to there um, is, is uh, so Brahman, that power is actually the mind. As Bhagavan says, for example, in uh, the fourth paragraph of Uludhanapriyan, Sorry, the fourth paragraph of Nana, he begins by saying, Manam embudu apma surupatilulla or adiseya shakti. That means the mind is an adiseya shakti that exists in apma surupa. Adiseya shakti means an extraordinary power. And then he goes on to say, Adu sakala ninevugaleum totru vikindradu. It causes all thoughts to appear. It makes all thoughts appear. And then, uh, then he goes on to say, uh, if we um, removing all thoughts, if we see, there's no such thing as mind other than thoughts. That the, the mind doesn't exist separately. There's no separate thing as mind. The mind is nothing but thoughts. Therefore, thought alone is the nature of the mind. And then he goes on to say, Ninevugale uh, tabitu jagam indro porul anyamai ille. Excluding thoughts, there is no such thing as the world. So the world, according to Bhagavan, is nothing but thoughts. And to whom did the world appear? It appears only to the mind, which is itself a thought. It's the first thought. Um, so, and the mind is a power that exists in Atmasarupa. So the power he's referring to in the first Mangalam verse of, sorry, in the first verse of the main text of Uludhanapadu is this, um, is this, uh, this Adiseya Shakti, which is otherwise what is called Maya. But it, Maya is nothing, as Bhagavan said, Maya is nothing but ego or mind. Um, so, but it, that is, so long as we see the multiplicity, we have to, it is, the, the best option is to accept that there's, there is one thing that has the power to appear as all this multiplicity. Actually, from the perspective of that one thing, there is no multiplicity, but from our perspective, there seems to be. So, that, why does that, uh, one first principle, which is what he refers to in this verse, as in this uh, this Mangalam verse of Uludhanapadu and Abandam, as the uh, Ullaporu, the one existing substance. Why does it have this power? Because it alone exists, it is therefore infinitely free, because there's nothing other than it to limit its freedom. So, since it is infinitely free, 
it has what is called uh, swatantra shakti. Swatantra means um, uh, freedom or independence. It has the power of freedom or independence. So it, it, since it has that power, it can either remain as it is, just as one, or it can appear as many. So it, it has that, that's why it has that power. Of course, that power is not real. What is real is only uh, but um, from our perspective, because we see all this multiplicity, we can explain this multiplicity by saying it's all only an appearance. And how does it appear? By a power that belongs to that, uh, that uh, Ullaporul, uh, that to Brahman, in other words, to to our own real nature. So, since it has that um, that swatantra, that freedom, it can either remain as one or it can appear as many. Of course, it always remains as one, but it has that uh, freedom to appear as many. So, because it has that freedom, for the sake of its freedom we can say all this world exists. That is the explanation given by uh, Sadhu Om. Another explanation we can give is all that is said in this verse, this Mangalam verse of Uludhanabdu Anubandam, all this ultimately is from the perspective of ego. Because in the perspective of, the, of Brahman, the one existing reality, the one real substance, the Satvastu or Ullaporul, there is nothing other than itself. So there is no multiplicity, there's no world or anything. So because we see the world, we have to, this world cannot exist independent of the, the world, it seems to exist. As I said earlier, it seems to exist only in the view of ego. And even ego seems to exist because it doesn't exist permanently. Here we have to, to, to clarify this, another important philosophical point that Bhagavan often mentioned is what actually exists must always exist. What doesn't actually exist, what doesn't really exist, sorry, sorry, whatever doesn't always exist, doesn't actually exist, doesn't really exist, even when it seems to exist. This philosophical principle is touched upon by uh, Lord Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, in the first uh, half of that verse, he says, there is no uh, existence of what doesn't exist, and there's no non-existence of what does exist. So what do we understand from that? When he said there's no there's no non there's no existence of what doesn't exist that means what doesn't exist can never exist it never actually exists it may seem to exist but doesn't actually exist and whatever and because he says what what they, they, there's no non-existence of uh, of what is existent that means what exists must always be real it can't some it can't it must always exist it can't some exist at some time and not at another time if it were existing at one time and not at another time it would be switching from existence to non-existence so it wouldn't actually exist because what actually exists mean if, when we talk when we say something actually exists or it really exists what we what we mean or what we should mean is that it's intrinsically existent. Uh, um, to explain this, we can use the um, 
we we can that is existence is not a property existence is something more fundamental than any property but we can illustrate this um using uh using proper uh, properties as uh, as a uh, as an analogy so take the property of heat some there are many things that are hot but not everything that is hot is intrinsically hot for example you uh, if you cook your your food your food is hot well it's just after you cook it if you leave it for some time it becomes cold again but just after you 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 you've cooked it it's still hot it's just fresh from the from the fire fresh from the oven so it has the, the food you're eating is not uh intrinsically hot it's borrowed its heat from somewhere else where is it borrowed its heat from it's borrowed its heat from a fire the fire is intrinsically hot you can't have fire without heat fire is by its very nature hot so um heat is an intrinsic property of um of fire it is not intrinsically an intrinsic property of our food or our tea or our coffee or whatever else we may have heated up so but if something has a property that is not intrinsic it must have borrowed it from some other source so if you if you make a um if you make a cup of tea or coffee if you 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 the heat of the tea or coffee comes from the hot water of, from which it's made and that hot water derives its heat from the, the kettle in which it's made and the kettle derives its heat either from a fire or from the, a heating element but it, it basically it, it's from fire in some form even if you it, it's from an electric heating element the the, the uh, though the electric heating element is not intrinsically hot, the fire in that, that, that is in, induced in that by the electricity is intrinsically hot. Fire is always hot, in fact, it's very nature. Uh, so any, any, um, anything that is not an intrinsic property must come from something, it must ultimately come from something that has that intrinsic property uh that that's the analogy so um in the case of existence whatever doesn't exist always is not intrinsically existent so it borrows its existence from something else so all phenomena seem to exist in whose view only in the view of ego so they derive their semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego and ego doesn't always exist it appears in waking and dream it disappears in sleep so ego is not inherently intrinsically existent so ego doesn't actually exist though it seems to exist it doesn't actually exist so from where does ego derive its its semi-existence it derives its semi-existence from the real existence of ourself what is actually existing is such it that is the pure being, pure awareness, which is what shines as I am, our own existence and our own fundamental awareness, I am. That is what actually exists, because that exists in waking, dream, and sleep. So they, they, we, 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 we have never and could never experience anything um, without, experience, without experience, without being aware of our being. So our being and our awareness of being are fundamental they are what actually exist 
So ego, which is the false awareness, I am this body, I am this person, derives its semi-existence from a real existence of I am, our own real nature. So the one thing that actually exists, the uh, Ullapurul, is, as Bhagavan says, implies in this verse, it is Swarupa. Swarupa means our real nature. That is the pure, uh, our own being, our own fundamental awareness, I am. Uh, so, um, since everything that is talked about in this world, in this verse, that all the worlds that are referred to, the, the, um, uh, uh, since all of these exist only in the view of ego, they 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 exist in the view of ego. They are, arise. Um, they belong to ego. It's ego's perception. The whole world is nothing but ego's perception. It's ego's uh, not, uh, awareness or knowledge of the world. The world has no existence independent of ego's knowledge of it. So everything exists in ego. It exists of ego. It exists. Um, Sorry, I'll just go through all, all the options in this verse again. That is, it exists um, in ego. It, 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 it's egos. It belongs to ego. It, um, it, uh, it is that from which ego is that from which everything else arises. Ego is, um, I'm not saying ego is Ulupural, by the way. Uh, ego is that. For which all these, uh, it, 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 that is all this is uh, uh, only for ego, but all this appears. And it is that uh, by which all this is made. That is, as Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, uh, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. A hande indrail indruanatum. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. A hande yavamam. Ego itself is everything. Adalal yadu idu endrunadale uvadal yavamenor. Therefore, investigating what this is is giving up everything. What does he Bhagavan mean here? Why does he say if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence? Because whenever we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be a body and we are consequently aware of a world and so many other phenomena, both the, the physical phenomena of the world and all the mental phenomena that seem to be uh, seem to be inside our own head, all the thoughts, feelings, and so on. Um, uh, so all these phenomena, they appear only in the view of ego. So if ego comes into existence, all these things come into existence. If ego doesn't exist, how can any of these things have any existence? Because the, all these things are, 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 nothing exists independent of ego's perception of it or awareness of it. So what we, what now I'm looking at a computer screen in front of me. This computer screen is just, my awareness of it's, it's a mental impression it is it's it it has no existence independent of me who am seeing it so everything uh because everything exists only in the view of ego when ego comes into existence everything comes into existence when ego doesn't exist everything doesn't exist therefore ego itself is everything what does Bhagavan mean when he says ego itself is everything as I said, all these, all phenomena are just mental impressions. 
And that mind that is impressed with all these things, the, the substance of that mind is ego. So nothing is other than ego's awareness of it. So all these are only, um, Sadrom expresses it nicely in his commentary in this verse, which in somewhere I noted, he said, he said, Ullahum ahandei arivinum verandru. That is, the world is nothing other than the, than the awareness, than ego's awareness. That is, the ego's awareness of it is the implication. Just like Bhagavan says in, um, in verse 6 of Uludhunaptu, uh, Bhagavan says, um, Uh, uh, the world is a form of five sense impressions, not anything else. Uh, here I'll just add a comment. Sense impressions means uh, sights, sounds, um, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. These sense impressions are actually mental impressions. So uh, the implication is that all these are, the world is nothing but mental impressions. Those five sense impressions are impressions to the five sense organs. Since the mind alone, or since the one mind, it can be taken either way, perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there a world besides the mind? In other words, what Bhagavan implies here, if the world is nothing but, it consists of nothing but these five kinds of sense impressions, sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. And these five sense impressions, they are impressions respective to the five sense organs. But what it's not that the eyes are not seeing, the ears are not hearing. But they are but the eyes and ears and other sense organs are like windows. What what's what sees through the eyes, what hears through the ears, what feels through the skin, what tastes through the tongue, what smells through the nose, is only mind or ego, um, that is the perceiver of all these things. So since the mind alone perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there any world besides the mind? The implication is the world is nothing but mental impressions. So mental impressions are mental, they belong to the mind, in other words, they belong to ego, the perceiver of them. So the world has no, that's why Bhagavan says, Handeya Yabamam, in verse 26 of Alunapdu, ego itself is everything. That is, when we dream, we, the dreaming mind, see ourselves as the whole dream world. We see ourselves as a person in that dream world. We see so many other people. We see so many things happening. But all these are nothing but our own mind. So the mind is seeing itself as a world. Ego is seeing itself as a world. Um, so since all this is a dream, Bhagavan says, ego itself is everything. Ego is seeing itself as all this world. So this world has no existence whatsoever independent of ego. Um, so. Uh, Ego is is that in which, of which, for which, um, by which. That is all. This is is projected by ego. It's only egos. It's only ego has just like um, the dreamer projects the dream. The dreamer is ego. So ego is the projector of all this. So by all, all this is by ego. Um, 
and all this ultimately is ego. But in this, so this is Bhagavan's analysis. But Bhagavan then, but this is an intermediate step. This isn't what is being said in this Mangalam verse, because this Mangalam verse uh, skips over this step of ego. It says all these are, it appears in Brahman, um, uh, it, it belongs to Brahman, but Brahman means the Ullaparo, the Satvastu. It, um, it, uh, it, um, it, it comes, it, it appears from Brahman, it, um, it appears for Brahman, and it appears by Brahman, and it is Brahman. That's what this verse is saying. All of these we could equally apply to ego, but then, but ego is a is is a that is in Bhagavan's analysis. All this is ego, and if ego investigate, if ego instead of looking outwards to see this world, turns within to see who am I, ego will subside and merge back into its source. Ego will then see itself as Ullaporal, as the the one as Satchit. As 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 Brahman, when ego, as soon as ego sees itself as Brahman, it ceases to be ego and remains as Brahman. So, if we if we understand this verse, this Mangalam verse, in the light of Bhagavan's teachings, we can bring in this intermediate step of ego. So we can say, ego is that in which all this world appears. Uh, who's all that is? of which all this world is. And in other words, whose world it is? The world, the world is ego's perception. So it is it it it, it has that um it, it it the world belongs to ego, so to speak. It, but in the sense that it is all ego's uh perception. It uh it arises from ego. Um it it, it all appears for ego and um and it appears by ego. Uh, so all these relationships are there with ego, and if ego investigates itself, and it all is ego, that's the other step, but if ego investigates itself, it finds itself to be Brahman. So the, the, the immediate substance of all this is ego. The ultimate substance is the Ullaporal, the one existing substance, the substance that actually exists. So if we if we introduce this intermediate step and understand that all this world appears only in the view of ego, then it is, that's another way in which we can explain for which, because all this world is for ego for the reason I explained, because the world is, 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 is a place of misery. That we are few, no one is denying that we're, we don't experience joy here and there in this world, but the, the, the price we pay for the few pleasures or joys of this life is all the suffering that comes along with it. So ultimately, this world is not a satisfactory place. So the world is there to teach ego, but its own unsatisfactory nature in order to teach ego to turn within and thereby to merge back in its source and remain as the one Ullapurul, but it always actually is. So we can explain the four um, by also bringing in this intermediate stage. But um, so, so that, I mean, Sadwam has explained in one way, this is an alternative way of explaining it. Um, but both texts, both explanations are valid from different from uh viewing it from different perspectives 
um so coming coming back to the main verse um that that is the difficult one to explain as i say is for which or, or for what um then the next one is by what by what is the um is the instrumental case um that is all this world it, it this world appears in the reflected awareness the chitabasa called ego so it's only in the view of ego that the world appears but the light by which it appears is only the that is the chitabasa is is a is a is a seeming awareness or, or a, a, a reflected image of awareness. The original awareness is the uh, ulaporo. In other words, the, the, the mind derives its limited awareness from the pure awareness, the real awareness, that is the real substance, that is the ulaporo. So um, it is only by that, by that light of pure awareness reflected in this mind that all this world appears. Um, and uh, that is the uh, ulaporul is the light by which the world appears, and it is also the substance. It's also the being that the world has no existence independent of uh, Brahman. So Brahman alone is the substance. Here, when it says by, there, um, it's using this by. It's not talking about the. Um, it's not talking about the nimitakarana. Nimitakarana means the active cause. So, if, for example, if you have a if, if you have if you have a table, if you ask what is the cause of the table, you can there there are three causes. You can talk about the uh, um, uh, the the, what in Tamil is called the mudalkaranam. I think, yeah, I think it's called mudalkaranam, which is the, the material cause of the table. The material cause of the table is wood. I think in Sanskrit that's called uh, uh, upadana karana or something. I, I, I can't. Upadana karana. Upadana karana, yes. Um, so the wood is the, is the material cause of the table. The nimitakarana, the active cause, is the carpenter. And you can also take uh, point out to a third cause. The carpenter couldn't make the table with his bare hands. He needs instruments. He needs saw and um, drill and hammer and all sorts of instruments. So those are the instrumental causes uh, in Tamil, they're called tunekarana, the, 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 the auxiliary or the, in, the, 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 yeah, auxiliary causes. Um, we could say instrumental cause, but sometimes the, um, yeah, we, the instrumental cause we can, we can call it, but it's not, we shouldn't confuse it with the nimitakarana, which is the active cause, that is the carpenter. So in the case of the world generally most religions say god is the nimitakaran god has created this world but according to advaita brahman doesn't create this world brahman is the substance out of the bastu or the poral out of which the world is made it's the ultimate substance so um just like the 
the rope is the substance that appears as a snake. Brahman is the substance that appears as all this world. So uh, the, the Brahman is the is the upadana karana, the, the, or in Tamil they say mudalkarana, the, the, the primary cause, the, the substantial, the material cause. Not the Brahman is material, but it, it's a, the substantial cause, we can say. Um, so in that sense, all this is by Brahman. So uh, by what all this world arises. So without Brahman, this world could not appear. Because Brahman is both the, the substance that appears in the world and the light. The substance means it is the, 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 the existence that appears in this world. And it is also the awareness by which the world appears, by, in the light of which the world appears. Of course, the world appears only in the mind light, but the mind derives its light from Brahman. Um, and then he says, uh, he says, um, if, if, el, if elamum eduvo ahum, whatever this all is, in other words, Brahman is not only that in which the world appears, of which the world, uh, whose the world is, uh, from which the world arises, uh, for which the world arises and by which the world arises, it's what the world actually is. There's no world other than Brahman. So all this, this entire world is, whatever all this is, and then he, the main clause, adutane ullaporolam, that itself is the existing substance. So in other words, the existing substance, ullaporol or satvastu, is that in which all this world uh, exists, uh, Whose all this world is, um, uh, 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 from which this world arises, for which they are, by which they are, and what they actually are. So all the that that covers six of the seven cases. That leaves only the second case, the accusative case. Um, uh, which is the case for the object. So, in other words, the if you do something with, with with something, that which you, um, if you, if you've got a, a a football, if you kick it, the football is the is the object. You who kick it are the the, the agent of the action. So, taking that as the object, what are we to do with it? As Bhagavan says, let us hold that in our heart. Um, in the Sanskrit original of this verse, the word Swarupa is not there. Um, I don't, I think, yeah, I think it's not there. But Bhagavan has, has clarified, but what that one existing substance is, it is Swarupa. In other words, it's our own real nature. It is that which, that Satchit, that existence awareness, but is ever shining in our heart as I am. So let us hold that in our heart, or the word he uses to hold, um, the vapam, uh, 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 um, is, uh, this is an optative form of the verb, vei, which means to put or place. It also means to cherish or to guard. So let us cherish that in our heart. That implies let us lovingly meditate upon it. Um, uh, let us fix our whole attention on that alone, because that all this world is just an appearance. None of this is real. 
what is real is only that underlying reality, that ullaporo, uh, in which, uh, of which, um, uh, uh, um, from which, of, uh, uh, for which and by which all this appears, that the underlying reality, the underlying substance, what all this actually is, is only that ullaporo. So rather than, uh, uh, attending to the world or attending to anything other than ourselves, let us cherish that which is always shiny in our heart as I am. Let us cherish that. Let us hold on to that. Let us meditate on that. That is the, the, the import of this verse. Um, so this is a very fitting um, uh, uh, introduction, Mangalam, to this, uh, to this work. And he just um, he he starts with this verse and he ends with a very nice verse in the concluding verse of Uludunapdu. I'll see if I've got it here. Yes, what what he says in the in the concluding verse, just to show how he begins with talking about um, holding on that swarupa in our heart, and what is the uh, what is the fruit of holding on to that swarupa in our heart? He says in the very final verse of, uh, of Uludhanabdu Anubandam. What he says in this verse is, Akila Vedanta Siddhanta Sarate Aham Ummayaha Arevan. Um, that means, um, I shall truly proclaim the essence of the final conclusion of all Vedanta. So what is that uh, essence of the final conclusion of all of Vedanta? He said very beautifully, aham settu, I dying. Uh, that means aham adu ahil. I, um, if, if I is that, or if I becomes that, it doesn't literally become, but not, when I, the ego dies, we then remain as that. So if I is that, um, arivuru vam, Ab aham, that I, which is the nature of awareness, or whose nature is awareness, adei micham, that alone remains. Ari, know this. So, if we meditate on this, um, on this swarupa, which is the one ullaporal, in which, by which, for which, of which, um, from which all these appear. If we meditate on forgetting all of this, forgetting all the worlds, forgetting everything other, and holding on to the swarupa alone, if we hold on to that, ego will thereby die. And what we, uh, when ego dies, we will then uh, recognize what I actually is is nothing other than that swarupa. That is the true import of the. Of the uh, of the word I, what I actually refers to, as Bhagavan says in verse twenty one of Upadesha Undia, Nanenam Sopurul Amadu Nalame, Nanatratukutum Undipara, Namadime Nikatal Undipara. That he's by that he's referring to what he was talking about in the previous verse, which is that one reality, that one. Buna Bastu, um, or as he says in Sanskrit, um, uh, Paramapurnasat, yes, he describes it as Paramapurnasat. So that Paramapurnasat, which is what appears as 
shines forth spontaneously as I am I when ego is annihilated. Bhagavan says in verse um, in verse twenty one, he says, um, uh, um, "Nanen of sopuradu amadunalame, nanatutukatamundi para, namadime nikatalundi para." That referring to that parapurna sat that appears as I am I, that is always the, uh, the true import or the real import of the word I. Why? Uh, because of the absence of our non-existence in sleep, which is devoid of I. When he says sleep is devoid of I, the I that is absent in sleep is ego. But we exist there. So the real I, what we actually are, does not cease to exist in sleep, even though ego ceases to exist. So this, what we actually are, that alone is the real import of the word I. So in this um, in this final verse of Ulugnapduan Bandam, when he says, um, Aham Setu, Aham Adu Ahil, that means I dying, if I becomes that, uh, that that means it, when ego dies and we experience ourselves as that, that means uh, the, the one real I, the satvastu, the ullapodal, when we remain as that, when we are just that I, that pure I, arivuruvam abaham, that I which is uh, uh, the, the, of the, which is the form of awareness. It literally means that means of the nature of awareness. That I, whose nature is pure awareness, is the implication. Adai Micham, that alone remains. So if we hold on to this Swarupa in our heart, ego will uh, die. The whole world will disappear along with it because the world exists only in the view of ego. And what will remain is only that one pure. I, the one, what that I, but the, the I in its true form as pure awareness, unadulterated by any adjuncts. That is, ego is that same I mixed and completed with adjuncts. When ego dies, what remains is just the pure I, <laughs> unadulterated by any adjuncts. So this is the, this is what all of Bhagavan's <laughs> teachings are about. This is what Uludunapdu Anabandam is also about. Although there are miscellaneous things there, as I say, it's a mixed bag, but the central theme running throughout it is represented by this first and last verse. This first verse and that last verse. Sorry, I've spoken for a long time, but I hope that was a useful explanation. Thank you, Michael. If anyone has any questions, please post on the chat box and we will post it to Michael in order received. Um, so I was looking at this verse and one of the things that came, you know, I was thinking to myself, um, how divine has ordained it in such a way that this one verse happens to be the very few, among the few that was not translated into Jnana Vashistha. <laughs> well, right, in, so, that, so, in that particular section, that particular yeah. uh, that conversation between those uh, siddhas, it was the only verse that wasn't translated, so it was left I mean, to Bhagavan to translate it. <laughs> exactly. No, what I mean, like, just I can't even 
think of, you know, imagine how and why that would happen. You know, you know yeah, why. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but um, like like that. Happened. Later on, there's some other verses later on. Um, I think uh, um, I'm just trying to remember the number. I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, yes, verses 26 and 27. They, there was in in the original uh, Yoga Vashisthi, the, the, the complete work. There was a chapter with ten verses, all with with generally the same import. Only six of those were selected for yoga for the Lagu Yoga Vashista. So only those six were translated in um, the the Tamil Jnana Vashistam. But in Jnana Vashistam, two verses were. Uh, were combined as one verse in Jnana system. So in Jnana system, there are three verses, but represent six out of ten verses in the um, in the original Jnana system. So the other four remaining verses, Bhagavan translated as these two verses, twenty six and twenty seven in Anubandham. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> It sure said the most important ones were left to Bhagavan to <laughs> Yes. <laughs> After a few hundred years. Yes. How many years gap is that? Um, <laughs> well, Lagu, Lagu Yoga Vashistha is probably about a thousand years old. And Jnana Vashistha is probably, I don't know, I have no idea. But it's it's, it's many a few hundred hundreds years of old, years old. Yeah, 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 it's a few hundred years old. So, um, interesting. And all of that happens to just find its way in here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, any uh, questions on on this verse? So I know I haven't. Seen. Okay, here there's one question here. Um, so there is a question from Mira: Can ego ever know pure awareness on its own? Since pure awareness is subtler than ego. Ego perceives the world using the sense organs, but can it on its own perceive the pure awareness, its own source, like waves rising out of ocean? No, ego can never experience pure awareness because pure awareness can never be an object of awareness. What knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. However, though ego can never know pure awareness, the whole purpose of Bhagavan's teachings the whole purpose of Bhatma Vichara is we as ego are trying to experience pure awareness. We're trying to experience ourselves as pure awareness. And though as ego we can never experience pure awareness, if we follow this path Bhagavan has taught us, uh, attending to ourselves, we as ego will eventually come to see ourselves as pure awareness. However, as soon as we see ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego, because ego is the impure awareness, I am this body. Pure awareness is just the awareness I am, the awareness of being, such it, that is pure awareness. Ego is the adjunct mixed awareness. Yeah. So the adjunct mixed awareness can never know pure awareness yeah. as an object. Yeah. But when it tries to know itself as pure awareness, the adjuncts drop off, and the pure awareness I am, which is the essence of ego, the reality of ego, that alone remains. This is what Bhagavan means in this final verse, I dying. That means I, the I that is to die is ego. That is the 
And how ego dies, the adjuncts drop off and the pure I alone remains. That is why he says, Adain Mitcham, that Arivuruvam Aham Adain Mitcham means that I, which is uh, uh, of the nature of awareness, which is pure awareness, that alone remains. So, Thank you, Michael. Though ego can never know pure awareness, ego needs to try to know pure awareness. So because can... only by trying, by knowing pure awareness, will it cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. So may I ask something? When the ego yeah, yeah. drops, when yeah. the ego drops, can we do our work during waking state without the doership? Who is who do you, who is the we you're referring to? Do you mean ego? The ego. But ego has dropped. Oh. When the ego, or do you mean, the, or do, the doership do, drops. Do, do you want Brahman to do its work? No, Brahman does not work. So it's only <laughs> yeah. a witness consciousness. Yeah. So all this, our existence as a person mm -hmm. and our life in this world, all exists only in the view of ego. Can yes. ego do its work in sleep? No. Can you no do ego, your work? No world. You, yes. you have so many duties and responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you not doing any of your responsibilities in sleep? Because no you ego. don't exist. There's no ego yes. there. Yes. Thank you. This, this, Thank is, you. this, is, this is where Bhagavan's teachings are so special. Mm -hmm. Bhagavan has no, nowhere before has it been so clearly emphasized, as I say, like this verse we I talked we talked about today, here it's there's no mention of ego here at all. The only implication when he says they palm, let us med the arm there implies us. Let us meditate, or may we meditate? So that we who is to meditate on Swarupa is ego. If ego meditates on Swarupa, it will lose itself in Swarupa, and Swarupa alone will remain. So this, this verse doesn't mention ego, whereas according to, if you read Uludunapadu, the main text, mm. the whole, the central theme of Uludunapadu is that everything depends upon ego. And if ego investigates itself, it thereby merges back in its source, and what the underlying yeah. reality alone remains. Yes. This, yes. I, as far as I'm aware, this has not been brought out so clearly. Particularly the point, by one point, the Bhagavan emphasized very clearly in Uludunapadu. We, particularly in verse 25. In verse 25, he summarizes what he says in so many other verses. That is, ego is a formless phantom. It's formless because it's mm -hmm. got no form of its own and it's a phantom because it's got no substance of its own mm -hmm. so how does it uh, i mean why does the ego seem to exist uh, what is the nature of this ego bhagavan says uh uruvatri undam sorry urupatri undam grasping form it comes into existence yes that yes. doesn't mean that by grasping form it comes into existence because it has to exist in order to grasp form that mm. means as soon as it comes into existence it grasps form but, but it's the rising of ego and it's grasping form are one and the same thing urupatri nikkom grasping form it stands urupatri undu mika ongom 
grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. So what, have you, what is this form Bhagavan is talking about there? Since ego is a formless phantom, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So all objects or phenomena are forms. So it is the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping form. Ego feeds upon form, feeds upon phenomena. That means any every thought, every phenomenon, every object, every event, everything is a form. Every, anything that you can distinguish from any other thing is a form. Yes. So ego is constantly grasping things other than itself. I mean, he says, Uru Vittu Uru Patram, leaving form at grasp form, because we cannot stand for a moment as ego without grasping form. And of course, the first form we grasp is this body consisting of five sheaves. But then he says, Te Dinal Otum Pidicum, if sought, it takes flight. Or even more literally, if seeking, it takes flight. In that word, Te Dinal, if seeking, there is neither a subject nor an object. That is, who is to do the seeking and what is to be sought is not specified. But the implication is, if ego seeks itself, in other words, if it seeks its own reality, if it seeks to know who am I, what it actually is, it will take flight. That means it will run away. What do you mean by saying it will run away? It will subside and dissolve back into its source. Because, why is that? Because Ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this body. This body means this form of five sheaves, as he says in verse five of Alutnaftu, Uru Pancha Koza Uru. So the body is a form of five sheaves. So ego is that, is that I that rises and is aware of itself as I am this body of five sheaves, this, this form of five sheaves. So ego first grasps that. It is ego that is grasping this form. It, the form is not grasping ego. No forms can grasp ego because ego is a formless phantom. It's a very slippery um, customer. We can't catch it. Uh, or at least nothing else can catch it. We, even we can't catch it because if we look for it, it'll run away. It's like, the, as Bhagavan said, like the bridegroom's friend, the wayfarer who posed as a friend of a bridegroom who happily feasted for five days the, the bride's party thought he, he was a bridegroom's friend. The bridegroom's party thought he belongs to the bride's party. He was enjoying himself. When the whole wedding came to an end and everyone was leaving, then when the, the bride and bridegroom's party sat together to discuss how everything went, Lots then they nobody. started to ask, who <laughs> is that very helpful young man? As soon as he found they were beginning to inquire about him, he slipped away. Yeah. Such is the nature of ego. So long as we take ego for granted, it does all mischief. It bosses over us. But if we begin to investigate, what is this ego? Who am I? This ego will slip away. This is, as far as I'm aware, in the vast ocean of Vedanta Sastras, nowhere has this been so clearly and uh, explicitly expressed? You could argue that it may be implied here and there, but nobody has expressed it so explicitly. This is the very essence of Bhagavan's teaching. This is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. This is the, the unique uh, 
secret that Bhagavan has revealed to the world. This we can say is the first law of nature. All the laws of physics and everything, those are all secondary. They're all to do with the appearance. But the, the, the first appearance is the appearance of ego. And the law of, the, the law of nature of this ego is that it rises, stands, and flourishes by grasping things other than itself. But if it tries to grasp itself, it will subside and disappear. Because but it rises, it cannot stand without grasping form. So if instead of trying to grasp form, if it tries to grasp itself, because it's grasping itself, but it's no longer grasping the form, the form, the adjuncts, the upadis will drop off and the pure eye alone will remain. Aham setu, aham adu ahil, arivuruvam abaham adei micham. That is, I dying, if I becomes that, or if I remains as that, that I, which is of the nature of awareness, that alone will remain. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. <laughs> um, so I have a couple of questions. It's a um, similar theme, but just sort of looking at it from different angles. Um, how can we, Ram asks, how can we use mind to eliminate mind? It seems we need to do that, meaning we need mind to do that. However, wouldn't it become a paradox? That the, out, the outward looking mind can never get rid of the outward looking mind. So long as we're looking outwards, we'll continue looking outwards. What we the mind is a mind so long as it's looking outwards. So as Bhagavan said, all other sadhanas, all other practices, they take the existence of ego or mind for granted. And they use that mind to try and um, to, to try and um, um, control the breath or to um, do puja, chapa, dhyana, practice bhakti, all good, all very, very good things. But it's still using that mind in an out, the outward looking mind. The outward-looking mind can never know the truth. The outward-looking mind can never destroy itself. However, that same mind which is looking outwards at other things, instead of looking outwards, if it turns back to look within, to look at itself, to see who am I, it thereby ceases to be mine and remains as the pure awareness. Right. That is... We that that is the, what Bhagavan is explaining in verse twenty-five of Living Aptu. The nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping form. So long as we continue grasping form, we are feeding ego. So we cannot get rid of ego. So we can do all sorts of good actions. We can do or we can do all sorts of charity and noble deeds. We can make so many sacrifices for the sake of others. We can worship God. We can do puja. We can do japa. We can do dhyana. We can do all sorts of yogas. We can do all the eight limbs of yoga and everything. But we still cannot kill this ego because we're still looking outwards. So long as we look outwards, so long as we grasp anything other than ourselves, we, uh, we, we cannot destroy ego, nor can we destroy ego by merely stopping thinking, which is the aim of yoga. Yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. The aim of yoga is to curb the mental activity. 
what happens when you curb mental activity? The mind will subside, but it subsides only in layer. Every night when we fall asleep, we curb all mental activity. Chittavriti Nirodaha is achieved every night. So if you want to achieve Chittavriti Nirodaha, very simply, get tired and you'll automatically fall asleep. That is Chittavriti Nirodaha. But the next morning it again all rises again, because it, that is Manolaya, not Manonasa. So how to bring about Manonasa? As Bhagavan says, in, in verse 13 of Upadesha Undia, he says, uh, Dissolution of mind is of two kinds, layer and nasa. What is subsided in layer will rise again. If its form dies, it will not rise. In other words, if nasa, if we subside in nasa, we will never rise again. So how to bring about the destruction of the mind? Bhagavan says in the next verse, verse 14, if the mind which will be which will subside by means of breath control before it subsides completely in layer, he doesn't say that, but that's obvious, the obvious implication. If that mind is sent on ovary, then only will its form die. So what is that ovary? Ovary has two meanings. It means orumvari, the investigating path. In other words, the path of self-investigation, apavichara. It also can be taken to mean the one path. Ovary can also mean oruvari. Um, what is that one path? What is the one path by means of which the mind will subside? Only self-investigation. So whether we take it to mean one path or the path of investigating, it implies the same. Only by turning our attention away from everything else back towards ourselves. We shouldn't, Bhagavan never asked us to try and stop thoughts. Because if you try and stop thoughts, Firstly, it's very difficult to stop thoughts. You need special techniques of yoga to bring that about. Uh, well, it's easy because when we get tired, we fall asleep. But normally in day-to-day in -day life, we can't just bring about the cessation of thoughts. Because the ego which wants to bring about the cessation of thoughts is itself a thought. That's why in yoga, they have all sorts of tricks like pranayama to bring about this subsidence of mind. But it's only, the subsidence of mind they, the mind subsides in what is called nivikalpa samadhi. But according to Bhagavan, that nivikalpa samadhi is just like sleep. It's just a state of manolaya. It's, the mind is going to rise from it again, as he says in the eighth paragraph of Nana. Though the mind remains subsided, when the, so long as the breath remains subsided, when the breath emerges, the mind will also emerge and wander under the sway of its vasana. So remaining in nivikalpa samadhi or manolaya does not bring about the the, the destruction or even the weakening of Vishayabhasana, because the Vishayabhasanas are inactive in that state. In order to bring about the, uh, the destruction of mind, the only way is to turn the mind back within. That is what Bhagavan means by sending the mind on the Ovari, the investigating part. That means sending it back within to see who am I. When we turn within to see who am I, ego will thereby subside, and ego will see itself as pure awareness, then, only, then it will be destroyed. Ego cannot be destroyed, merely that, that is in sleep, but ego subsides. But why does it rise again? Because ego subsides, and what remains in sleep is pure awareness. 
But ego isn't there to experience that pure awareness, so ego doesn't die. You cannot kill ego in its absence. So ego needs to see itself as pure awareness. It can see itself as pure awareness only by turning its attention back within, withdrawing its attention from all other things and attending only to itself. As soon as it sees itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. That is what is called the eradication of ego. That is what is called manonasa. So it is only by this self-investigation that the mind will die. So Bhagavan has made this so, so clear. So this Furana has to be there. So, oh, oh, what the is Furana? What is Sparana? Sparana simply means clarity. Right. So the clarity has to be how to get how to get that clarity. So long as we're looking outwards, our, our mind is clouded by all our um by by first by our attachment to this body and then our desires for so many other things. And that's that is a completely clouded state. In order to get clarity, we need to turn our attention back within to see the the source of the light that illumines the mind. The source of the light is our own being, I am. That is such it. That is the original light. So um, the more we turn within, the more clarity we get. That clarity is what is called sparana. And as Bhagavan says, he describes that sparana as aham aham uh, uh, sparana. Aham aham means I am I. That is, the more we look within, the more we become aware of ourselves as ourself alone. The more we begin to recognize that what we actually are is not this body or anything else. What I actually am is only I. So during the practice of self-investigation, we experience sparana to a certain extent. The deeper we go in the practice, the more brightly that sparana shines. And when we go deep enough within, we then get swallowed by that sparana. And then what originally appeared as sparana, as a new clarity, will be recognized to be sahaja, our own real nature. Right. So sparana is, be, be, people talk about sparana as if it's some, some special thing. It's not, there's nothing special about sparana. Sparana is, it, it's just that inner clarity which is ever shining, but which we are generally not looking at because we're looking outside. We are misusing that clarity to know this world. And we think we know this world very clearly, whereas in fact, our knowledge of the world is nothing but confusion, darkness. If we want to know clearly, we only we need to clearly know ourselves. So we can experience the sparana only by turning within and see it ever shining in our heart as our own being. Thank you, Michael. Um, Fenton says he heard a Bhagavan quote from another teacher and within quotes, the eye removes the eye and yet remains the eye. End quote. So can you verify if this is an accurate quote of Bhagavan's? I think that sounds like it's a reference to this final verse of Uludhunapadu Anubandam, in which he says, I dying, if I becomes that, that I, which is the form of awareness, alone remains. We, we, in such cases, we need, uh, 
if I die, then how can I become that? And how can I alone remain? We need to understand what is meant here by I. Here I, or aham, the, the, when he says aham settu, that I refers to ego. Aham settu means I dying. What is the I that can die? Only the adjunct mixed I, namely ego. When that I dies, it dies when the adjuncts drop off then what remains is just the pure eye, and that which is of the nature of awareness, and that alone is what remains. Thank you, Michael. So um, I, I think that pretty much matches that. What, what was the quotation again? The eye removes the eye, and it remains the eye. Well, eye I, I is to be removed, and thereby we are to remain as I. That is, ego is to be removed, thereby we remain as ego, and then, sorry, ego is to be removed, then we remain as I, as the pure I, exactly. and then the exactly. pure I alone remains. Right. So the first two I refers to the ego, and the last I refers to. No, no. Uh, well, yes, I suppose so. But he's, the first I refers to ego. The second I, when he says, aham adu ahil, if I becomes that, or if I remains as that, that means when ego is dead, what thereby we remain as that adu there refers to brahman when we remain as that as that pure eye uh then that pure eye which is of the nature of consciousness alone remains right so the final eye is the world of the yeah the uh, same eye but without adjuncts exactly there is there is only ever one eye but when it that I is seemingly mixed with adjuncts, as I am this body, I am this person, I am Michael, I am Bruce, I am whoever, uh, that is um, that uh, um, that is ego. When that same I remains without any adjuncts, as the pure I, that is Satchit, that is Brahman, that is what we actually are. Right. Um, so for last question for today, and what is the ego or mind before it identifies with the body? From Sandy. It, Bhagavan says, that is, Urupatri Undam, it comes into existence grasping form. So it, it, ego cannot exist without grasping form. It's, it's it's very grasping that you define as ego, right? It is the grasping that which grasps when it grasps. That's what you call that it as which grasps. Yeah, not the grasping, but the the grasper is ego. Right. So the very nature of ego is to grasp a body as I, and then to grasp so many other forms. Instead of grasping other things, if ego tries to grasp itself, then it will Then it will uh, subside and uh, disappear run away take flight so this question what is the ego or mind before it identifies the body it's nothing before it identifies the body because it didn't but, even exist right i mean that... yeah yeah it's not ego it, well before it identifies with the body or when it sees identifying with the body it remains just as pure awareness but then it when it's pure awareness then it's not ego exactly we so... can't simultaneously be ego and pure awareness exactly. as soon as we we, so long as we see ourselves as I am this body, we are ego. When we see ourselves as pure awareness, we are pure awareness. Right. That's what they call it, mutually exclusive. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so very good. One thing, though they are mutually exclusive, they are not they are not two equal partners. That is no, exactly <laughs> only one is real. And even when we rise as ego, what we actually are is only the pure eye. But we cannot experience ourselves as the pure eye so long as we rise as ego and thereby mistake ourselves to be this bundle of adjuncts called uh, the body. That's why I like the verse 25 of Upadesa on the air. I think it's 25. Knowing oneself without adjuncts is knowing God, because God shines as oneself.